Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, loving us. Uh, Thank you for providing a way for uh, your people in the Old Testament to know how to um, live with you, how to walk with you, uh, how to live in a pleasing relationship with you, and that was all through the sacrifices. Uh, Thank you for doing that for them. Uh, We can't help but thank you for our Lord Jesus who made all of those things um, done and complete and perfect uh, so that we get to live in light of what he did, uh, which is all of these examples uh, to, uh, to the infinite degree. So we thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he not only is the sacrifice, but it's through him uh, that we find um, favor and reconciliation with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Pray your spirit would take all of these things and help us to not only understand, but internalize them uh, for our own good and for your glory. We love you and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was asked a couple of great questions uh, before. One of the reasons I walk around and say howdy to you all uh, is because I always get good questions. And then I can dazzle you because you think I thought these questions up. I didn't. I actually heard them from you. One of the questions was, these were the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Why are they coming back in the millennial kingdom? In other words, The Jews don't practice them now, right? Uh, We don't practice them now, but they're coming back. Why would they do that? It's like communion. For us, communion, we understand the symbols and what they point to. In the millennial kingdom, they'll go through these sacrifices, and now they'll know to whom they point. So they'll get their, in a sense, their communion in the millennial kingdom. So great question. I love it that you're thinking about these things. That will make more sense, what I just said to you. If that didn't make any sense to you at all, it'll make sense by the time we finish tonight, I hope. A lot of blood and gore in Leviticus 1 through 7. Uh, the word I've put on this book is Holiness. Okay, so Genesis, you could say, was the book of beginnings or the family tree of faith. Exodus, redemption, Leviticus, holiness. Okay, bonus points, Job. Unmerited suffering. All right, turn your papers over. Turn your notes over. Oh, yeah, turn them over. Face down. Back from Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant came into existence. There were three characteristics of the Abrahamic covenant. Note I said three characteristics. Three characteristics. Not what it promised. Three, write them down on your paper. Laurie, would you walk around and check the answers, please? Okay. Three characteristics of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay. 
writing them on your paper. Underneath that, write the three promises. Underneath that, what? Cheating is not allowed. God is watching. Okay. Yeah, I can't see what you're writing on your paper. Some of you could be, don't write any cuss words about me, but I don't know what you're writing. Okay. Then write, we've talked about some very important chapters in Genesis and Exodus. What were those chapters? Hmm? Open book. <laughs> Open? No. Then write the name of Job's four friends. All right, you don't have to do that one. You don't have to do that one. <laughs> All right, then name the sacrifices we're going to talk about tonight in order. Well, you just read it, right? Fresh. Fresh on your mind. All right, you don't have to write that one either. All right, three promises of the, old, uh, of the Abrahamic covenant. The three promises. Land seed blessing. The three characteristics of the Abrahamic covenant. Unilateral, unconditional, and unending. Very good. All right, uh, let's see. After that, we talked about uh, key chapters. Okay, Genesis chapter 12. Why chapter 12? Because that's where the promises first came to Abraham. Next one was? Okay, chapter 15 of Genesis where the covenant was actually cut. Now you can go ahead and fast forward to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 was? The Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, and then chapter 40, because that's where God came to dwell with His people. If you didn't get to hear Jonathan Murphy's sermon this morning, go download it and listen to it. What an unbelievable companion message, unplanned, <laughs> Jonathan did for tonight. Another James story, that's right. There's another James. Poor James. <laughs> okay, Exodus chapter 40. Humongous news. God comes to dwell with his people. God is a holy God. Leviticus is about holiness. Who wrote it? Moses. When did he write it? Around 1445 B.C., in the one-month span that they were um, preparing to go uh, make the rest of the trek across the Jordan River. He writes it probably at Mount Sinai, and one of my profs said this about why Moses wrote it. 
because Yahweh is now dwelling among his people in holiness, he provides prescriptions mediated through Moses for the people to remain in relationship with him. Prescriptions, right? Do this. Mediated through Moses for the people to remain in relationship with him. He's a holy God. What are they? A a sinful people. (laughs) What does God do to sin? Mm. He doesn't get along with sin very well. And he would kill them if they did not follow his prescriptions. Two questions are going to naturally arise, if you're Moses and you're writing this, two questions are going to arise. In the context of God freed his people that they might follow him in faithful obedience, resulting in intimate fellowship and reverential worship, this is why God freed the people, in light of the suzerain vassal treaty, which is the form of the Ten Commandments, You have two questions if you're an Israelite. First, how do I offer appropriate and pleasing tribute or worship to this holy God? Second, how do I maintain day-to-day fellowship with this holy God? So your two questions are going to be answered in the book of Leviticus, the first 16 chapters all about how do I approach a holy God. A holy God has just decided to live in the tabernacle in the midst of our camp. And he said, here's how we're going to live together. (laughs) You have a question. How do I approach this God? Second, which is answered then in 17 through 27, how do I live with him? How do I approach him and how do I live with him? Approaching him, God gives standards through Moses for honoring God's holiness in their public worship. Standards for honoring God's holiness. Then in the second half of the book, he gives them standards for imitating God's holiness in their private walk. So he's going to talk about their public worship and their private walk. God's redeemed must honor His holiness in their worship and imitate His holiness in their walk in order to enjoy His ongoing presence and blessing. That is the context for the sacrifices. How do I approach this holy God? He says, you come through sacrifice. Well, how do I live with you? How do I walk with you? And He'll talk about that in the second half of Leviticus. So the first seven chapters are going to fall into how do we approach this holy God? That's why you saw talk in these chapters that if if stuff touches something that's holy, right, and then, you know, people can die if they do things the wrong way in this. God takes this very, very seriously. How do I approach him? I don't get to come any way I want. And how do I live with them? Again, he expects me to imitate who he is in the midst of my uh, daily, uh, my, my week, my daily walk, my week. 
All right. Point for tonight. What does God want to teach His people through the sacrifices? What is He trying to teach them? Simply this, the kind of heart He longs to see within them. That's why in the Millennial Kingdom, when we get to see the sacrifices again, this is the kind of heart I wanted to see in you. And wonderfully, this is the kind of heart I saw in my son. What does God want to teach his people through the sacrifices? The kind of heart he longs to see within them. That's it. That's all we're going to learn tonight. Ready? Go. The sacrifices. Now we get into the details. And there are a lot of details. Background on sacrifices. Do you remember where the first place we saw a sacrifice? Before? Cain and Abel. Remember? What did Abel bring? Okay. Yeah, the, uh, Abel brought an offering of the flock. What did Cain bring? I'm sure they were his best. You know, I don't think Cain necessarily brought crummy, rotten carrots. But he decided he would bring this. What did God say to him? This I accept, this I don't accept. Now, Cain, if you'll change it, I'll accept that too. But if you don't, and Cain says, I get how this game is played, I go kill my brother. God is, God is serious about how this stuff works. Where else did we see sacrifices? Abraham, remember he, uh, the, every place he stopped and he built an altar, he sacrificed. Okay? Who else sacrificed? Which is kind of interesting. Noah sure did. Job. How did Job learn to sacrifice? I don't know. But he did. <laughs> and he seems to have sacrificed the right things. Okay. We get into Exodus. God redeems the people out of Egypt. He brings them through the wilderness. He takes them to Mount Sinai, and he says, I'm coming to dwell with you. This is how we're going to do it. Let's talk about the sacrifices. So there's nothing new about the idea of sacrifices. It's almost as old as Genesis chapter 1. It goes way, way, way back there, this idea of sacrifice. What do they do? They maintain and restore fellowship between a holy God and his redeemed people who sin. Please note the word fellowship. Status or do I cease being redeemed? No, but I have impacted the fellowship that I have with God. They're efficacious. I know, big word. They're efficacious because they accomplish what God said they would accomplish for those with faith. Now, did they accomplish it forever? No. 
Therefore, the priests of the Old Covenant never got to sit down. Contrast, the Lord Jesus, when he had finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God because when he finished his sacrifice, it was done. But these were, it seems, efficacious to accomplish what God said they would accomplish for those with faith. They're also didactic, meaning they teach his people about a true worshiper's heart. And you can cross-reference 1 Samuel 15, where I believe you'll find uh, that uh, David is saying that he understands that God is not satisfied with these things, but with a changed heart. God prefers the changed heart to any number of sacrifices. So they're didactic, they're teaching, they're uh, symbols that teach Here's what he's trying to teach his people. He's looking for a heart that's fully consecrated to him. And those will be in the first couple of sacrifices. He's looking for a heart that rejoices to have communion with him. And we'll see that in the next couple of sacrifices. And then we'll see a heart that knows it needs cleansing by him. And we'll see that in the last couple of sacrifices here in this, these these seven chapters. So the sacrifices did do what God said they would, but they were also there to teach. So a consecrated heart, the first thing God is trying to teach is that he's looking for a consecrated heart. How does he do that? What is the symbol for that? Now, this was a symbol, but it also accomplished what God said it would accomplish. So it's more than a symbol, but to us today, it's a symbol of what was happening. So there's a consecrated heart, the burnt offering. The burnt offering is the first one listed. It was voluntary, <clears throat> excuse me, except for the priests and the feasts. The burnt offering was voluntary. It was the very best the worshiper had. It did make atonement or propitiation from chapter 1, verse 4. <coughs> Excuse me again. By that, it was, there was a recognition of sinful status and a need of acceptance. The worshiper recognized something was amiss and therefore presented the burnt offering to God. It expressed the full devotion, commitment, and surrender of a true worshiper's heart. Basically, as is this sacrifice, burned up wholly and completely, so is my life unto you. This is what the burnt offering, this is what God is trying to teach them through the burnt offering. As the burnt offering is completely consumed, so... Let my life be to you, Lord. Another part of the consecrated heart, another one of the offerings that reflected a consecrated heart was the grain offering. That's the next one he gets to in Leviticus. And that's in chapter 2. It was also voluntary and the very best. It was never offered alone but on top of a blood sacrifice, basically represented the dedication of the fruit of their hands 
or their service to God. So I would take my grain offering. There's also a drink offering, which we talked about last time. The drink offering that we learn about in Numbers was also voluntary. Thank you. It was also voluntary. It wasn't offered alone, but on top of a blood sacrifice and represented a life poured out in devotion to God. So both of these grain offerings and drink offerings were placed on top of a blood sacrifice. You couldn't just, you didn't just pour something out or throw some grain on, on the altar fire. You didn't do that. It went on top of a blood sacrifice. So the significance of these three offerings two in Leviticus, the other one shows up in Numbers. They were fragrant offerings, so God is pleased. God can only be approached through blood. He is driving this lesson home to them. He can only be approached through blood. Therefore, only service, for instance, the grain offering, only service offered after blood is pleasing. Isn't that interesting? There are a lot of people who say, I can't wait to meet God and plead my case because I've been good to the, you know, and they name off all the people they've been good to. Well, that's like throwing a grain offering on the altar fire, not on top of a blood sacrifice. This is nothing God is going to be pleased at because the grain offering, the service aspect was only acceptable if it were on top of a blood sacrifice. But these three sacrifices express unreserved dedication and dependence of the worshiper on God. Wonderful pictures of Christ, who was without spot or blemish. You were to give your best, and one in whom there was no defect. It was also to be a male. All is given in a, uh, in a burnt offering. All is given. Nothing is held back, which our amazing Lord did. All was given. Nothing was held back. Question. Do I daily offer God my very best? Or do I just offer him my leftovers? Do I daily express my total commitment and unreserved surrender to him and his will? You might ask that same question the other way around. What am I holding back for myself and why? When we look at these burnt offerings, we should be led to ask some application-oriented questions like these. God is pleased with a heart that holds nothing back from Him. What pleases God? A heart 
that holds nothing back from him. From there, we move on to the peace offering. That's chapter 3. Now, the teaching switches from a consecrated heart to now we're going to look at a communing heart, a heart that enjoys communing with God. So, we have the peace offering. It was voluntary and the very best as a rule. It could be a female offering. It could have some slight defects if it wasn't for fulfilling a vow to God. And a portion was shared not only with the priests, but with the worshiper who offered it. It became a communal meal with God following forgiveness and reconciliation. Sound like anything we do today? It should. (laughs) A communal meal with God. So the peace offering was... I'm seeking peace, and I have found peace with God, evidence, we share a meal together. So the priest gets a part, I get a part, and God gets a part, and we basically have a meal together. The significance of this, it was also a fragrant offering, meaning God is pleased with it. And in the ancient Near East, that's what A-N-E, ancient Near East, In the ancient Near East, to eat with others was to make them your friends and allies. Hostility has ended. If you put your feet under the same table, hostilities are done. This is a friend or an ally. It would be a joyful expression that the worshiper is at peace and in communion with God as well as with his people. It would also express joy, peace, and gratefulness for special mercies granted. That's a peace offering. Great picture of Christ. Jesus, pictured, uh, Jesus purchased our reconciliation with God through his self-sacrifice. So as functioning as our peace offering. He is the one who not only is our peace, but purchased our reconciliation and therefore peace with God. Through Him, we have peace and fellowship with God and others. Essentially, we feast on feast with God on Christ when we're in His Word. And we offer the sacrifice of praise as we meditate on His rich mercies in our lives. Our communing hearts, let's make some applications here. How long has it been since I've offered up heartfelt, spontaneous praise just for the privilege of being in communion with God, not because of something He's given you, but just because you are in communion, in fellowship, at peace with Him. How long since you've just broken out and praised Him for that? Might be something you want to 
meditate on or journal on tomorrow? Could I see giving thanks at each meal as a picture of a peace offering to God? And if I did, what might I say? How might I recognize that? We're always quick to pray for the food. I think that's a good thing. Thank you, Lord, for the food. Is it also an opportunity to praise God who, with whom we are sharing this meal? I think it can be. So how would your, how would your mealtime prayers, whatever they look like, how would your mealtime prayers need to be a little bit adjusted for this? Let's talk about communion. Do I just step through communion these days, or do I stop to be truly thankful for the unique peace and fellowship Jesus has bought me? Do I just take the communion? Do I come prepared and ready to take communion? It's always the first Sunday of the month. It's no mystery. We don't try to hide it. It's the first Sunday of the month. Could you come two minutes early? And prepare your heart for, for communion when it gets there? Maybe. I know we usually do a little prayer that kind of helps you a little bit, hopefully, get set up and ready for communion. But what a neat thing to prepare on your own or with loved ones, friends who are sitting with you. Just get prepared. I don't think we should just step through communion. It's just this thing we do, rip, Gunk, rip, blink, done. Where do I put this thing? I, I need to. Right? I know, I'm meddling. Just asking questions. God is pleased with a heart that rejoices in his constant companionship. Now, how about a cleansed heart? He's talking about a consecrated heart. He's talking about a communing heart. Now he's going to talk about a cleansed heart. And so we go to chapter 4 with the sin offering. And then chapter 5, sins requiring a sin offering. And then chapter 6, sins requiring a guilt offering. And at this point you're going, yeah, this is what I thought Leviticus was about. And so here it is. Chapter 7, further instructions for the guilt offering. Yep. How do I approach a holy God? He says, come through sacrifices, and one size does not fit all. So the sin offering, it is not voluntary. It is for purifying or disinfecting. It's like a Lysol sacrifice with Force 100 Lysol. Get this, it is for unintentional or overlooked sins. Not high-handed sins. In the Bible, there's a difference. There are high-handed sins. Lord, who are you to do this? High-handed. But then there are unintentional sins. And he says... When you find out you've done this, then 
do this. There is no provision, there, there is a provision, but we're not to it yet, one, but there's no regular provision for intentional sins. What does God think about sin? He's not for it. He provides for unintentional sins, not for intentional ones. Sin broke fellowship with God. Sin brought pollution into the camp defiling the tabernacle of God as well as his land. You think, are you kidding me? One sin, Lord. Yeah, one sin. One sin has polluted the camp and polluted my land. One. The sin offering, a citizen, so... You and I would have brought uh, uh, a sacrifice to the brazen altar, to the big altar in front, which was in the courtyard. And we would have brought that whenever we recognized that we sinned. That's what we would bring. We would bring a sin offering. The nation or the high priest, if, if he unintentionally sinned or if the nation unintentionally sinned, then you had to go to the altar of incense in the holy place. And there you had to apply blood to the little horns of that incense altar. Well, what happened with intentional sins? They seem to have come on the Day of Atonement where the high priest brought a year's worth of sin to God. He had to go to the mercy seat behind that inner curtain in the Holy of Holies and apply the blood in specific places. That's why they tied the rope around his ankle. <laughs> because after one year of sin, God might say, no. Poof, you're dead. And guess, who, guess what happens to those who go in and go get him? Poof. So they got to pull the, pull the poor fella out. This thing on sin, we can take a little lightly from time to time. I know I do. God does not take sin lightly. And you say, well, thank goodness I'm in Christ. Amen. And yet... He says in Romans, Paul does, God does through Paul, the wages of sin is death. And you've always said, well, that, yeah, that's of course, salvation. No, that's not it. The wages of sin is always death. That's what sin does. It kills, it destroys, it, it wrecks stuff up. And people say, well, uh, this sin only affected me. There is no sin that only affects the sinner. You see him teaching this? This sin affected 
the camp, the tabernacle, and his land. No sin only impacts or affects the sinner alone. None, not one. Ah. A cleansed heart. Sin breaks fellowship with God. It did then and it does today. Sin brought pollution into the camp. We're in a different time, and so that isn't the case. But it brought pollution into the camp, and eventually this is why God uh, sends them into exile, out of his land. He says, my land, right, it's going to vomit you out. That's kind of how God sees sin. It's like Ipecac. It makes, you, it makes you throw up. And he goes, there's so much you've been pushing down my throat, I'm going to throw you up out of my land. I really right now don't like standing up here <laughs> talking about this because uh, I'm no less guilty than any of you. We're all sinners saved by grace walking on this journey together. Don't think that there's 18 inches where I'm better than you. I'm not. <laughs> it's not true. This is convicting stuff. And if it isn't, um, read Leviticus again. The sin offering. How do I get a cleansed heart? He tells me how I'm to do it. Well, what about the trespass offering? What is that? And what's the difference between that and a Uh, a a sin offering. Well, the trespass offering, that's not voluntary either. It's for restitution and or satisfaction, and it's focused on the damage done by the sin. So first there's the penalty of the sin. That's the sin offering. And then there's the damage done by the sin, and that's the trespass offering. So let's say I mean, some of the examples in here. Let's say I, um, I cheat my neighbor. Uh, I've got to first offer a sin offering because there's a penalty that I've brought between myself and God, between the tabernacle or, or to the tabernacle and in the land. I mean, I've, I've done a thorough job in just cheating my neighbor I've done a thorough job of polluting the entire camp and relationship of the camp to God. So we gotta first we gotta take care of that. So I gotta offer a sin offering. Well, my neighbor just got, let's say I cheated him out of something. Then I have to also offer a trespass offering because there's damages that were done. Yes, relationally, but probably financially. And so there has to be some kind of damage. Uh, there's, a, there's a sacrifice for the damage. It required repentance and restitution. Sin is seen as a debt to be repaid. Remorse should be the attitude of the, uh, the responsible party. Responsibility leading to confession. Yes, I cheated you. It was wrong. I'm sorry. And then restitution, which is restoration plus a fine, usually, in addition to this uh, trespass offering. Their significance, 
the sin offering and the trespass offering. They are required. They are non-fragrant offerings, meaning uh, the fragrant offerings, God is pleased. The non-fragrant offerings, not so much. Sin pollutes more than just the one who sins. Sin hurts God and hurts others. Sin is costly to commit and costly to cleanse. Sin requires repentance before restoration. There's the sinner's remorse, the sinner's responsibility and confession, meaning he has to own it before he confesses it. And then there's the sinner's restitution. They're pictures of Christ. He is our sin offering. He died outside the camp. He died to pay our debt. And He paid it in full. For by that one offering... He perfected forever all those whom He is making holy. He is our sin offering. He is our trespass offering. Let's make a couple applications here. Our cleansed hearts. The heart of our problem with God is a problem of our heart. Will I characterize my sins as done in ignorance or done with eyes wide open? Have I thanked God lately for the perfect sin offering of Jesus, whose blood has removed my guilt as far as the east is from the west? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including mine. Have I thanked God lately for His Son's perfect trespass offering that marked the damage and debt of my account paid in full forever? Paid in full forever. One deals with the penalty, one deals with the damage done by that sin. What is God teaching His people through the sacrifices? Cleansing. He wants a heart that doesn't desire to be polluted with sin, but instead longs to be holy He wants to teach them about communion. He is pleased with a heart that rejoices in his constant companionship. And consecration, he is pleased with a heart that holds nothing back from him. Interesting, isn't it? When you look at these sacrifices, the order you find them in Leviticus is reversed of the order I have them here. 
In Leviticus, it begins with consecration, then it goes to communion, and then it goes to cleansing. For us, it starts with cleansing, then there's communion, and then there's consecration. What make ye of that? Leviticus is picturing our Lord Jesus who began with consecration, had perfect communion with God, and as a final act offered Himself up as our sin and trespass offering. For us it comes the other way. First there must be cleansing, then there can be communion, and then there can be consecration. Leviticus is looking ahead to our Lord Jesus and putting these sacrifices in His order, not in our order, in His order. Kind of interesting. For next time, read Leviticus 8, 9, and 10, only three chapters, pretty easy, 8, 9, and 10. Read those chapters. And we will take the next step in our journey of how do I approach God from the book of Leviticus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the marvelous, amazing pictures of our Lord Jesus in here. Uh, He is amazing, and we worship you for him. We thank you for him, not just what he did and what he brought us, but the, the fellowship that we have with you, the ability to just live in your presence, the ability uh, or the, the privilege that you've given us to be called by your name. As Jonathan reminded us this morning, the inheritance that we have that is guaranteed, and we will one day see you and share in that inheritance. We, I, I know I at least just call out to you and say, who are you who would do such things for a sinner like me? And you kindly say, because I loved you. Thank you. Lord, you're amazing. We worship you this evening. We thank you. And I pray that you would take these things and put them deeply into our hearts in order that we might walk continually in the power of your Holy Spirit, in a manner that pleases you, reflects you, and imitates you, as we'll continue to learn in the book of Leviticus. We love you and thank you for your word and for your teaching and for your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.